0: Hello, welcome to Gratuitous Pausing. I'm your host, Jack Sneflin
1: And I'm your co-host, Alex Greyhawk.
0: Thank you for joining us for episode four of our time travel bracket. This is Groundhog Day versus Prince of Persia.
1: Wow, these films are really far apart.
0: Yeah, two very different energies to something kind of approaching the same idea. Sad man full of regrets becomes slightly better and woman settles. Yes. <laughs> I also really
1: appreciate that when producing it, they specifically titled Prince of Persia, colon, the Sands of Time.
0: They were sh- so sure they were getting another one.
1: And I guess they could play it off as oh no, we were being as close to the game that this is based off of as possible. But,
0: mm. eh. uh, yeah. <laughs>
1: I mean, we'll, we'll get into Disney's high hopes of the franchise when we get into that. But I believe we're starting with Groundhog Day.
0: Yeah. Groundhog Day comes first in terms of box office and also just chronology, although what is time anymore? Anyway, what happens in Groundhog Day?
1: Pittsburgh weatherman Phil Connors is once again sent to Puxatawney to cover the annual Groundhog Day festival. As always, Phil loathes the kitschy report and feeling shown up by a rodent. And new reporter Rita tries to cheer him up and suggests covering the whole day of events. Phil refuses and they leave town after the Groundhog ceremony, but have to turn back due to a blizzard. Rita and Larry the camera guy try to make the best of it, but Phil, annoyed, heads to bed early. However, when he wakes up, he hears the same song in DJ shadow as the morning before, and the rest of the day follows suit. The previous day's event's happening again, and Phil is the only one who's aware of it. At the end of day three of this, Phil realizes there can't be any consequences for his actions, and begins to be an even bigger asshole. He eventually sets his goal on sleeping with Rita, and goes through countless resets to do so, changing his approach with each new bit of information he learns about her, and parroting it back. This never works, and Phil loses interest and becomes despondent towards his chrono existence, going so far as repeated suicide attempts, but always waking up in the same bed and breakfast. Phil moves past this as well, and explains the situation to Rita, and reciting intimate facts about the townspeople as proof. Rita, curious, decides to spend the Rest of the day with them, but the day resets again at 6am. Phil eventually decides to improve himself, learning numerous skills and using his knowledge of the day's events to help others. Then, in one loop, Phil embraces the Groundhog Day Festival, impressing Rita with his seemingly overnight transformation, and after an afternoon of Phil performing good deeds around town, Rita bids for him at the charity bachelor auction. They spend the evening together yet again, and Phil confesses that he is happy no matter what the future holds, because he loves Rita. They share a bed, and in the morning, I Got You Babe plays on the radio again. However, Rita is there to turn it off. Phil is overjoyed having broken the time loop, and tells Rita he wants to live with her here in Puxedani.
0: So, while not the first movie to feature the idea of a time loop, this is sort of the ur-example. This is the one everybody else points to. This is the one everybody references when they think of time loop narratives.
1: All the time loop movies to follow suit, all of them reference Groundhog Day.
0: Mm-hmm. In fact... I've seen multiple different things where a character who somehow hasn't seen Groundhog Day is told to tell the nerd character Groundhog Day as a way to let them know what's happening and get them up to speed for the next loop.
1: And this film is a classic for a reason. It's not the first to come up with the idea of a time loop, but it explores it in an incredibly interesting way.
0: Mm-hmm. And I believe it has been cited by Buddhist theologians as a like exploration of the cycle of rebirth to as you slowly approach Enlightenment. Neat. Which fair enough. I think it's a pretty good example of that thing. Useful example. Mm-hmm. I say as a non-Buddhist theologian. So, yeah. where do we want to start with this one? I don't know. I think this is a movie where people like kind of know it. It, it, it exists in the cultural zeitgeist. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of hard to find new things to say about it. I will say, it definitely has some gender politics that have not aged well. No, it definitely
1: doesn't. I don't think they've aged. As poorly as some of the other films that we've seen. Oh, no, for sure. And even not as bad as some Bill Murray films.
0: Oh, yeah, I know. They're not awful, but the degree to which they are okay depends on your interpretation of the forgivability of someone who's,
1: uh, skeevy. Yeah, and Bill Murray is, again, kind of playing a skeevy guy. It's kind of vankman from Ghostbusters all over again. Mm-hmm. Except now he can gather information on women to use against them to sleep with them. Mm-hmm. Which he does.
0: Mm-hmm. Which is definitely played for comedy i think it wouldn't bother me as much if it was not played for comedy quite as much if it was called out as being as horrifying as it is a little more directly we kind of get that with rita but not as much with nancy yeah and he does realize he does acknowledge that he's being a jerk and stop and pivot to being the hero the town needs growth does happen and speaking of getting better i like that while he does get better he's still allowed to like Ascend to Wednesday, even uh, despite fucking with Ned Ryerson.
1: <laughs> I think that's my favorite thing. Is no matter how good of a person Phil becomes, or even when he is with Rita, still kind of addicted to Ned Ryerson. <laughs> oh, where are we going? Oh, let's not spoil it. <laughs> no! Because he is an insurance salesman, and they are the devil.
0: Yes. I believe we established that somehow you could tell he was the devil by just the way he walks. There's just something not quite human about that. <laughs> <laughs> this is no offense to the actor who plays him, who's doing it the most and having a great time with that character.
1: I know we've talked about it previously on the podcast before of like having some sort of metatextual information presented to us. I believe in our discussion with. Madison for Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, we really wished that we had subtitles that showed what was dialogue directly from the book and what were things that were changed for the film. I really wish we had a day counter on this.
0: Yes, I think it would help a lot because there are some scenes where you can't tell if, if it's a new day and the amount that Phil's wooing is okay is going to be dependent on whether or not we're in a new day or not. And that would help me assuage a lot more if there are times when he actually can be a genuinely kind person. He just has to sometimes do a redo to get it right. Mm
1: -hmm. Although he's just save scumming a dating sim, but in real life.
0: He is doing exactly that thing. And there's a great acting bit from Bill Murray where he's trying to have fun with the snowball fight with the kids again, and he's cracking under the pressure and he's just having fun wrong. And it's genuinely impressive to see. Like that is not an easy thing to convey. (laughs) Hey, some kid just threw a snowball at
1: us! Hey, come yeah. here! Let's have some fun! Come on, hey! <laughs> yeah! I wish were my old kids hit me like this! Hey! <laughs> hey! Ow, ow! Are any of you up for adoption? <laughs> Seeing his act break down, because that's all this has been, it's been an act. Each reset, he learns his new next line to try and woo Rita and get her into bed. And it's just gone on for so long, and he's gotten her... So close and can see the finish line, but has not done the deed yet, and he's just losing it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I also love that Rita can see through his bullshit through the fourth dimension. <laughs> oh
0: no, I can't believe I fell for this. This whole day has just been one long setup. Rita's pretty great. Rita's a fun character who feels real. Mm-hmm. I think it would have been really easy for Rita to have been a manic pixie dream girl, but she's not. Yeah. I think there's definitely parts to kind of skirt that territory, but don't actually quite get there. Because she's not trying to fix him. She's trying to make him less of an annoyance so she can just do her job. Yeah. She's trying
1: to manage him. Which yes. is
0: what a producer does. Yeah, she's, she's doing her job.
1: And that's when the narrative turns around is when Phil realizes, no, I need to improve myself. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, and... I think part of it is he realizes that in improving himself, he can also improve the world around him. It's kind of that he's been going through a no-stakes power fantasy, but now his no-stakes are getting to save everybody, which is really cool. Mm
1: -hmm. I also really like the progression that we see in Phil throughout the days, because you can take a look at it and view it through the five stages of grief, day two and day three. He's in denial about reliving the same day. He's going to see doctors. Something is obviously wrong with my head.
0: A poor psychologist.
1: <laughs> Most of my work is with couples, families. I have an alcoholic now.
0: <laughs> Which we're all not going to get back to. I love it. He's like, I think we should meet again. How's tomorrow for you?
1: Then after that, it's bargaining. He's like, well, I'm trapped here, but there's no consequences. So I might as well have fun with it while I'm at it. As things break down with Rita, we start to see anger, and we see his terrible report talking about...
0: I'll give you a a winter prediction. It's going to be cold, it's going to be gray, and it's going to last you for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm.
1: Then we have his bout of depression, where we just see the numerous suicide attempts none of which he even gets out of his pajamas to perform. And then finally he accepts that, yeah, I'm here. I have no idea how long I'm going to be here for. I'm going to make the best of it. I'm going to work on me. I'm going to try and be happy with what time I have.
0: Mm-hmm. And, you know, learn a skill because I want to learn the skill, not because I want to use it to impress a pretty girl. I want, I'm going to save people because they deserve saving, not because... I will get brownie points for it. Mm-hmm. I will say it is a trope that this movie has established that basically everybody uses it, of having a character learn an instrument as a way of conveying to the audience how long they've been in the loop. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a really good like method there.
1: Yeah, because there are a number of skills that take a long time to master, but people aren't familiar enough with to like have a sense of how slow and incremental that process is but almost everyone has at some point in their life tried to learn an instrument or had been forced to learn an instrument by a parent or has learned multiple instruments. Mm. And- What were yours? Saxophone in middle school and then guitar in high school.
0: Mm. That tracks for you. (laughs) Piano, flute, and French horn for me.
1: That definitely tracks.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but also part of playing an instrument is muscle memory. And so he can't possibly have muscle memory since he's resetting. That's all just- Intention. He's playing a piano through sheer intentionality of thought. Um like muscle memory isn't
1: actually stored in your muscles. And he has all of his memories, which means he's making new neural pathways every day. That's true. So he does still have the muscle memory. I mean it's still impressive having to go to that piano teacher, pay her a thousand dollars every day to kick the kid out of the session, and establish here's where I'm at in my training. <laughs> That's
0: true. I've been assuming that that would reset, but I guess it because it is a memory, it would still be there. Hmm, okay, I'm less impressed now, Bill Murray. Should have learned two instruments. <laughs> then I'd be impressed. I mean, he learned ice sculpting. Okay, that's pretty cool. Well, well no. Ice sculpting is never cool. That is pretty impressive. Different. <laughs> I guess ice sculpting is technically cool. It's always cool. <laughs> you can't sculpt water. <laughs> Not that, attitude. Also, you can. You're sculpting water when you're ice sculpting. It's just, you know, not called a water fine, sculpting. Fine, you can't
1: sculpt liquid.
0: There we go. Um, but also, your point about the five stages of grief was really good, and I'm sorry for <laughs> making this episode less intelligent after immediately after you said all those smart words.
1: I mean, we could just go ahead and get in with your gay nonsense.
0: Okay, fine. So Larry Larry has a weird gay energy. We know this. And I was kind of like amused by his odd off-kilter energy, but at one point we meet Bill, who's a waiter in a diner. Phil is doing a kind of like run through everything he knows about everybody and he says this. This
1: is Bill, he's been a waiter for three years since he left Penn State and had to get work.
0: He likes the town, he paints toy soldiers and he's gay. And later, Bill's walking away as Larry's walking in and we see Larry visibly check him out. Like there is no other interpretation for that eye check. Larry is definitely willing to pay the bill if you know what I mean.
1: The thing is, it makes so much sense for Larry's
0: character. He's really
1: awkward with women. We can see him towards the end of the film trying to date Nancy. There's this one line from when they're first caught by the blizzard that has some hilarious intentions if you read too far into it. Nobody honks this horn, but me, okay, pal.
0: Which I'm not sure if they meant to, but I'll accept it if they did. (laughs) And as far as I
1: can tell, no one has put two to two together on this, which means we're like... Cracking the code of, like, Larry the camera guy being gay.
0: I mean, I mean like, we didn't, like, do a deep dive to make sure that we read every bit of Groundhog Day discourse. You would need to be caught in a loop to do that. <laughs> but, you know, it might be true. I did a cursory Google search. That's, that's, that's good, good enough for this podcast. <laughs> we have day jobs. <laughs> so that's my gay nonsense for this movie. My other theory that I guess is probably more confirmed by the movie and also probably less goofy, is that Phil has seasonal affective disorder. So he probably does not enjoy the winter. He's probably looking forward to spring coming so that it can be finally over. And now he's caught in winter forever. It's always winter, but never Christmas.
1: Oh, also like other neat blink and you miss it sort of thing. One of the good deeds that Phil does is he helps a newlywed couple, the wife of who is like having cold feet on their wedding day. Mm. And... The groom of said couple
0: is Michael Shannon in his first film role. It's so weird seeing tiny baby Michael Shannon here. Looking (laughs) about the same as old man Michael Shannon. (laughs) Looking surprisingly
1: similar. Uh, He's he's definitely aged pretty well, but yeah, he's a great actor. We have gushed about his role in The Shape of Water playing a very compelling villain.
0: Mm -hmm. I think he just has the face for it. Like even here, he he should be like beating up James Dean or something. (laughs) A weirdly specific image, but you know that I'm right. (laughs) I cannot deny that. Question. Do we think that Phil is going to possibly do some reversion once he's out of the loop and doesn't have infinite resets and infinite knowledge of everything that's going to happen? I say as if we don't all live in a world where we don't have infinite resets and infinite knowledge of things that are going to happen and still manage to make it work.
1: I don't know. Lots of people have done a lot of number crunching and research into how long Phil was in the time loop. And it's significant. Low ball estimates are 30 years. That's a lot of time, and that growth is well established as a trend, and I don't see him being able to just go back on all of that incredibly easily. He's also planning on settling down in Puxitani, which means he may not have all this knowledge of future events, but he knows the entire town intimately well.
0: That's true. And I guess if he does settle down here, he would have a lot of support and people to help him through different problems i think mm-hmm. people have different life experiences and ages who probably be, have different wisdom he could go to and he probably know who to talk to about different things
1: also i'm pretty sure that phil's gonna end up being like mayor of puxatawney in a
0: couple years that'd be pretty fun
1: like everyone <laughs> loves him he has become a pillar of a, the community in a day <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah
1: that just seems like a like a logical next step for him yeah I don't necessarily know like what canon ending for Phil Connors is in the long run, but I don't think he goes back to being an asshole.
0: Oh, no. I, I wouldn't say being an asshole, but I think maybe like struggling more than he is to, at the end of the film. But also, if that's just how life is sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes you have good days, sometimes you have bad days. Mm-hmm. That's my, that's my <laughs> deep thought for this movie. Sometimes days good, sometimes days bad.
1: Speaking of uh, good days and bad days... <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, are we ready for Prince of Persia?
1: Yeah, I was thinking that.
0: <laughs> That's fair. So, Prince of Persia, the Unsolved Life, came out in 2010. My summary's a little loose here. When good king al lost, see, uh, sees an acrobatic orphan defy some guards, he adopts him uh, as his own son. Later, that orphan has grown up to be Jake Gyllenhaal, the youngest and craftiest of three brothers. Their uncle Ben Kingsley tells him that the holy city of Alamut is making weapons for their enemies, so they besiege it. Against the orders, Jake Gyllenhaal takes the city with barely a fight by unlocking the gates from within, during which he loots a pretty dagger. His brother Tuss asks the feisty princess of Alamut, Kelly Jones, to marry him, and she says no, but then she sees that Jake Gyllenhaal has a magic knife, and she decides to marry him instead. At the celebration, while she's plotting to get the dagger back, Tuss gives Jake Gyllenhaal a present to give to his dad. It's a beautiful prayer robe. Unfortunately, when his dad puts it on, he's burned to death, and Jake is assumed for the murder so he and Kelly Jones flee. Kelly repeatedly tries to kill Jake Gyllenhaal to get the dagger back, but he discovers the dagger is a time knife, and when he presses the button, he can rewind time a little bit. Unfortunately, he uses up the sand pretty fast, so he can't use it as much as it really should have been used for this movie. At the dad's funeral, Gyllenhaal tries to convince his uncle of his innocence, only to discover that his uncle was the real killer. Two is once Jake brought in for trial, but Ben Kingsley sends assassins after him, each more wacky than the last. This one has chains, this one has darts, this one has snakes, etc. Kelly and Jake figure out Ben Kingsley is after the dagger, plotting to uses it to go back in time to not save the king and become king himself. They decide to try to destroy the dagger to stop him, but the Sansons show up and take it back. So they have to race back to Alamut to stop him before he absorbs all the sand out of the sand glass and blows up time or whatever. And in the process, a lot of allies die. It was not not mattering because Jake Gyllenhaal hijacks the go-back-in-time plan, goes back to right before his dad dies, exposes Ben Kingsley as a bad guy, and proposes to Kelly Jones with the knife, wiggling his eyebrows to imply that they fell in love in the future, and they ride off into the sunset together. Uh, it is important to note that the character whose name is actually Tamina is played by Kelly Jones from St. Trinian's, and once you see it, you can't unsee it. <laughs> Also, Jake Gyllenhaal's name is actually Dastan, and Ben Kingsley's name is Vizier or whatever. But Nizam. Yeah, like I said, Vizier. <laughs> um, ben Kingsley walks in with a sign that says, I'm the evil Vizier on his head, as I mean, he does for most movies. I mean, it's
1: Ben Kingsley playing an evil brown person.
0: Yeah, it's it's what he does. <laughs> this movie uh, has a lot of white actors.
1: Yep, a lot of white actors playing people who should be v- much browner than they are.
0: We are at a time period... Well. Something like a time period of Persian history where they sp- spread out across a lot of the globe. It would not be unreasonable to have some European people in the cast. Especially
1: with Dastan being like uh, adopted.
0: Yeah, but they just have an overabundance of white actors here. Doing the whole thing where it's historical time period, so they have British accents. Yep. that's
1: Including Jake Gyllenhaal. Yeah. <laughs> Which... To be fair, I don't perceive his accent as that bad. I am sure some of our UK listeners will beg to differ.
0: Right. I mean, the accents aren't bad accents. They're just the wrong accents coming out of the wrong people. The acting is not particularly bad. It's not the actors' fault that they've been cast something that they should have turned down with a script that isn't really helping them. Well, okay. No, there is a part where the acting is not very good. Jake Gyllenhaal is trying to convince Kelly Jones that he's a good person or whatever, but he keeps just holding the dagger and shouting at her while doing so and she kind of like leans backwards like please please i can hear you we're the only ones in the sand dune uh so there's some opening
1: not even narration just like text to set the scene and it's in
0: papyrus i mean okay if this is a fantasy arabian Nights tale you're allowed to have papyrus here
1: I'm not saying it's wrong but as soon as i saw it all i could think of is so there's this comic called manly eyes doing manly things and it's not currently being updated but there's a backlog can go read it it's very hilarious but there's this one where the main character is interviewing the character from prince of persia you know your resume isn't quite what we're looking for Maybe you, know, I might be able to find a position for you in a few months' time. Reapply. I also suggest maybe don't write your resume in papyrus. And as the character is leaving his office, he kind of turns back and says "racist," but in the speech bubble, the font is also papyrus.
0: Uh, same energy as this movie, honestly. Exactly. There is a character who I kind of deeply love, uh, played by Alfred Molina, who is sort of the world's first Republican. Now I crafted our lurid reputation in order to fend off the most insidious evil that's been lurking this forsaken country of ours. You know what I'm talking about? Taxes. Not oh, these Persians, with their armies, their fortresses, their roads. Now, who pays for it all, eh? The small businessman! He's kind of an amazing character who is far more meta than the rest of the movie is. And I wish that more of the movie had been like that. It needed to be either more Monty Python and the Holy Grail or more Pirates of the Caribbean. And it's kind of just somewhere in the middle. Mm -hmm. This movie really wants to be Pirates of the Caribbean. You have that same kind of hijinks-filled set piece action. You have um, wacky characters on a quest. You have magic items, that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, and this came out three years after At World's End. Mm -hmm. And right around that time, Disney was exploring other action-adventure franchises that they could produce, and also other franchises that they could produce based off of theme park attractions that they already have. Mm -hmm. That's how we got Tomorrowland.
0: Oh, Tomorrowland. That movie existed. Will exist? Has been existed? (laughs) What is time?
1: This is interesting in the fact that it is also based off of a video game. And video game movies have the notorious reputation of being terrible.
0: (laughs) Even the best ones are kind of only okay or cult classics. Yeah,
1: this is one of the better ones and Mm. this is still like not good. No. It has the potential to be good and I think that's what makes it frustrating.
0: Right, because there's all these bits that are really fun like World's First Republican. I really like his knife-throwing best friend. Sesso? Sesso, yeah. Sesso's kind of fun. He's this like very honor-driven character who is, were he mapped out in Fate, he would have exactly two aspects. Ancient tribe of knife throwers, Iowa life death. <laughs> Those are his two traits and he plays them thoroughly. Yeah.
1: I'm glad that he eventually begins talking because otherwise he feels a little bit too much like Chewbacca.
0: <laughs> yeah. I didn't mention Alfred Molina or Sesso in my summary because they're kind of a plot cul-de-sac when they're introduced. We get Jake Gyllenhaal and Kelly Jones just going through the desert, fighting each other over the knife. We have this wacky ostrich race thing happens mm-hmm. and then they're back right where they started from across the desert with a knife having, I guess, become slightly better friends, but they're not really vital to the plot until the end when they just need some allies to have some fights, like the, like the shootout with knife throwers. Yeah, so this film has
1: the equivalent of a gunfight, but it's Sesso, whose whole thing is throwing knives, and one of the Hensansens
0: who has, like, these wrist-mounted dart launchers. If you've seen Cook and Dagger, it's functionally a metal version of the light dagger things that get their own. but it is so beautifully dumb. <laughs> I think capped off most by Sesso has unfortunately been hit three or four times in the plot armor and so he's bleeding out, but he grabs a knife that he's been sent here to grab and throws it out the window and spends all of his refresh uh, as he dies on making sure that Tribe of Ancient Knife throwers an Iowa life deck gets that knife to land right in a tree miles away from the castle right next to jake gyllenhaal maybe not miles but (laughs) definitely several streets away yes it's very silly and i kind of loved it a lot of the action
1: in this film feels very video gamey it's just kind of a little ridiculous and over the top but a lot of times it's also really fluid the action feels really good most of the time
0: yeah when we're actually having action scenes they're pretty good the opening bit where Jake and friends are scaling the wall, breaking parts of the architecture so that they can like open some gates or spill some boiling acid on people,
1: all really fun. Yeah, it really works. I think where the action scenes fail is where we get a lot of slow-mo
0: effects. Mm-hmm. <laughs> where they didn't film it in slow-mo, they just clocked down the frame rate.
1: Yeah, so typically how most slow-mo scenes are filmed, at least nowadays... Films are played back around 24 to 30 frames per second. So what they do is for those scenes that they want in slow motion that they will film at a higher frame rate and then they will just play them back at that lower frame rate and it looks like they're moving in slow motion and it's really fluid. However here that's definitely not the case and so a lot of the slow motion looks super choppy and grainy and just not
0: very good quality. Speaking of speeding up and slowing down action scenes I'm frustrated that there isn't more wacky time hijinks in this.
1: Yeah It's really frustrating because in the game like that's the whole main mechanic is you using the ability to shift time to make it so you don't miss jumps or to solve different puzzles and there's not a lot of it. The most puzzle solving we get is how to prove that the dagger actually works. So Deston like, stabs himself in front of his brother as he's trying to tell him about the conspiracy, and he's like, push the button, you'll see what I'm talking about.
0: And it's really convenient that he didn't, like, wait a few minutes just to make sure, (laughs) because, you know, the sand goes out really fast. The mechanics is, like, the sand doesn't refresh when you rewind time, so there's only, like, It can only store about a minute. Yeah. They don't have much more of it. It's not like they keep finding sand everywhere like in the games.
1: It's really unfortunate. The effects that they use for the Sands of Time are also really cool. They are starting to show their age a little bit. They're not awful. They're 10 years old. But I also think that they were pretty expensive and that is why we didn't get a whole lot of it during the film. Mm. And... Even at the climax where they're at the source of the Sands of Time and Dastan is trying to prevent his uncle from destroying the fourth dimension.
0: Yeah, the gods sent a sandstorm to destroy the world and then someone was like, wait, no, don't. And the gods were like, okay. Take me instead. Yeah, and so the gods like put all the sand in a crystal and if you stab the crystal with a knife and then turn it on, it releases the sands and destroys the world or whatever.
1: Yeah, we did not need the world's about to end plot. It could have just been, no, he will be a terrible king and...
0: And also kill my dad.
1: Yeah, that was enough.
0: Mm-hmm. I think they just really felt like they needed a big scary skybeam or whatever. Mm-hmm.
1: But like, going back to my point, even during that climax where they're they're fighting at like at the source of the sands of time, we're not getting time rewind hijinks or even Dastan and his uncle like showing up back to the future style at earlier parts of the film and trying to influence them like lost in time for a little bit. That could have also been a fun way to work that that would have been less effects heavy and I think would have worked. But no, it's kind of just super heavy effects and then all of a sudden we're Back at the first act of the film, and the plot gets resolved there. Yeah. <laughs> Which, I'm fine with that being the way that everything comes to a close. It works. Everyone gets a happy ending.
0: Apart from the people that Jake Gyllenhaal helped kill for no reason.
1: Yeah. <laughs> That's my only complaint. I wish... Couldn't we go back to the night before and just not invade the city that doesn't deserve it?
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
1: I guess maybe it had to be he could only go back as far as when he first got the knife.
0: Right, which that makes mechanical sense, but the movie could have kept going and I would have accepted it. But I guess it plays into the whole thing about how we can't uninvade the Middle East after (sighs) 9-11. So there's a a sort of allegory for America's approach to the post-9-11 stuff in this that I read. Evil Empire soldiers invade a place that has no weapons because someone told them that they had weapons because the evil people wanted to get their resources. Not wrong. Yeah, like, I mean, it's gross (laughs) oversimplification of both our ongoing colonization of the Middle East and also this movie. But I'm not wrong. I feel like this is coming from a time period where we were starting to comment on all that jazz with film, but, you know, Mm -hmm. like I said, Prince of Persia, the unsubtle knife.
1: (laughs) It's also weird coming from this film that is just so odd. I mean, look at the Hansansas. They're like the Arabian Knights of Red. <laughs>
0: um Yeah, I before whoever came up with that line came up with it, uh, Estrath was the why are you like this, Assassins? <laughs>
1: <laughs> what if the dude's signature weapons is snakes? <laughs> and at the end he gets stabbed by a snake. <laughs> During one of his attacks, Jake Gyllenhaal goes back in time after the snakes start popping out of the ground and he blocks from them with a torch and the snake impales itself on the torch like mouth first. (laughs) And I propose we move beyond jumping the shark as for what a film has gone too far. A film has now snaked the torch.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That is exactly what it has done.
1: There's also other... Less overtly ridiculous things. But this film manages to have the actors for Dastan and the princess, who are already in brownface, perform more brownface to sneak into the capital city. We didn't need recursive brownface. We didn't need a lot of things. (laughs) I think my
0: biggest problem with the film is the way it treats women. Yeah. So there is... Exactly one female character in this. Tamina, I'll stop calling her Kelly Jones for a little bit. She's pretty much the only woman with any lines in this. Are there any other women at all? There's the concubines. Do they have lines? lines? (laughs) Concublines? Maybe a few. Their their lines are,
1: I blame parents except he hasn't got them.
0: (laughs) Pretty much. And while Tamina gets to be fierce and clever and repeatedly outsmart Jake Gyllenhaal and get the dagger back she kind of becomes less competent as the movie progresses and she gets more and more in love with him
1: yeah which is a distinct trope there's also just how how shittily everyone else treats her Tuss at the beginning of the film a he has multiple wives sure I guess that fits in with the time period but he's also totally willing to kill her because she will not marry him really frustrates me that we had to translate what we in the modern day perceive as this historical misogyny into this magical historical fiction. It doesn't need to be here. You decided to put it here.
0: Right. And admittedly, we have the same kind of thing in Pirates of the Caribbean, but Elizabeth fucking Swan maintains her goddamn agency and becomes king of the pirates. Yeah. You get to have a very deft hand when you're exploring historical misogyny while still Comment on the badness and allowing women to rise above it yeah and this isn't quite achieve that
1: and there's also the thing that a lot of that misogyny is not historical it's still happening
0: yeah that too yeah
1: i think the biggest part though is so the person who stood up to the gods like no take me instead of all of humanity was a young girl who was of course pure of heart mm-hmm. and she became the first guardian of the sands of time and that tradition has progressed and Tamina is now another guardian of the sands of time and in order to prevent time from breaking have to return the dagger to the gods but that also means paying the price that was initially offered which means she has to die And has to be someone who's pure of heart and guardian of the sands of time which means it has to be Tamina mm-hmm. so for a good chunk of the film the end goal is, yep, let's fridge this lady so that everything can be okay. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm glad that they avoid it, but it's still really frustrating.
0: Mm-hmm. And I mean, Tamina does fridge herself at the end to make sure that Dastin, like gets to the dagger and all that jazz. So it's a classic save my girlfriend or save the world thing. But mm-hmm. And she's like, no, no, clearly I I must fall. I'm the only confident one here. Whoops. She got Gwen Stacy'd. She got Gwen Stacy'd, yeah. Gets undone, so it doesn't really matter. But yeah. Mm-hmm. However, there's a weird bit where they defeat one of the Arabian Knights of Ren and find out that he like has the tattoos of the Holy Order of the Sands of Time Keepers. Which
1: is how the film's like, oh, this is how the uncle found out about all of this.
0: Which we didn't need. Didn't matter. I could suggest that he knows that somehow. Yeah, spies, whatever. Yeah. But she, she declares... They corrupted the guardians, infected us. We're no longer pure. And have this idea that they have a really weird understanding of virginity there. <laughs> that virginity to them is being part of a religious order where no one has betrayed you. This movie's got so many weird problems. <laughs> I think I kind of enjoyed this is the, uh, the color theory. To me, it's pretty much always in whites. And Destin starts out in black. But Sully starts wearing more white as he becomes a better person. But then he'll put on some more dark colors as he starts slipping into more self-interested ways. When he puts more white clothes back on over time. It's clever-ish, I guess. Mm -hmm. i'm not even sure if it was real or if i was just grasping at straws because i needed something but
1: yeah that's the kind of film that this is
0: we're being down and admittedly it's not fair to compare this in groundhog day groundhog day is a much stronger film even if which is better to women groundhog day or prince of persia sense of time
1: honestly i think groundhog day is still better to women because we only see like one and a half characters being super shitty to women Mm. whereas all of the characters with the exception of I guess Sesso is shitty to to Tamina in Prince of Persia Mm
0: -hmm. Sesso is best boy ideal husband (laughs) hot honorable throws knives has a selfie stick
1: (laughs) I hate that I forgot you said it
0: Oh my! throws a knife that has like his own face carved into the pommel, which I believe is a historical thing that's not just from the movie but I call it a selfie stick because I was pretty far gone at that point (laughs)
1: Yeah, there, there was alcohol required for this viewing. <laughs> I will say that this film is at least partially trying to subvert the monarchy that's kind of inherent to these sort of historical films. Dasan is not of noble birth. He gets adopted. And in general, his father is like specifically grooming him to either A, take the throne himself or B, a good influence toward whichever of his brothers does take the throne Mm -hmm. he has this line a good man would have done as you did
0: master acting boldly and courageously to bring a victory and spare life a great man would have stopped the attack from happening at all a great man would have stopped what he knew to be wrong
1: and unfortunately that's a mistake that he never gets to rectify, even with the sands of time.
0: But he does feel bad about it. <laughs> yeah,
1: he does, he does mention it at, at his end in the speech where he's like, yeah, our uncle is doing this conspiracy. There's also a line from The King where he is, I saw a boy whose blood wasn't noble, but whose character was.
0: I liked <laughs> I think that was one of the best parts of the movie. The King is generally a pretty solid guy broadly although also he, when he became king he ordered the assassins be dissolved and didn't like double check that yeah like i feel like it's something you want to make sure got done right and also like set up programs so that the assassins have jobs after being assassins <laughs> otherwise this is how to get more assassins okay but here's the thing what's snake guy gonna do entertain children at parties.
1: <laughs> i mean i guess he could like make anti-venom that'd be cool yeah or like plumbing (laughs) literally snaking drains exactly (laughs) indoor plumbing it's gonna be big
0: if you're going to fire people make sure you have an exit strategy for them and provide social workers to help them find new employment tracks Mm -hmm. what i'm saying is we need more social workers for fantasy persia So anyway, that's Prince of Persia and Groundhog Day. I think it's pretty clear what's moving ahead here. Yeah, Prince
1: of Persia, while it is pretty decent by video game movie standards.
0: And it's a pretty solid, like, put it on in the background or whatever. Like, if you have friends over, it's kind of fun to laugh at.
1: Yeah, it's fun to laugh at. There's some interesting action set pieces, but the plot is very paint by numbers. Mm -hmm. The acting, for the most part, is... Fine. Jalen Hall's fine. Alfred Molina's fine. Uh Tamina's actress is fine. Mm-hmm. Like there there's some good quality moments there, but nothing that's super standout. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the film has so many problems that Groundhog Day does not. And that's not to say Groundhog Day is devoid of problems. We did talk about some of them, but there's a reason that Groundhog Day is a classic.
0: Yeah. And there's a reason Groundhog Day got a sequel and Prince of Persia didn't. <laughs> Uh, speaking of which, a friend of the podcast, uh, Madison Jones, and their co-host Mike have made three quotes to Groundhog Day, which you can listen to in the link below.
1: And next episode, we're also going to be dealing with an- another couple classic films. We have Terminator 2, Judgment Day, going up against Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Excellent!
0: <laughs> Prodigious
1: very very 90s episode coming next week
0: i'm so excited i haven't actually seen any of the terminators except for uh, the sarah connor chronicles so this is a big deal for me
1: to be fair the sarah connor chronicles is probably the best terminator made after terminator 2
0: yeah terminator 2 has
1: gotten so many sequels and all of them are crap dark fate is not bad from what i hear but i have not personally seen it
0: is that the new one that just came out yes yeah
1: I know the fanboys are enraged about certain things that happen.
0: Women. The women have lines (laughs) in it is what you're saying. (laughs) That's what the fanboys are always mad about. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's what it boils down to. Yes. Yeah. Uh,
1: So if you want to catch that episode as soon as it goes live, make sure to follow us on your podcasting application of choice. And you can also catch us on social media at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.
0: This has been the gratuitous Pausing Podcast. Thank you for tuning in.